Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. On this episode, we have two guests, and after we discuss their personal journeys, we'll be talking in depth about ways that linguistics departments can help their students prepare for careers outside academia. Mikhail Temkin Martinez studied linguistics at California State University, Northridge, and the University of Southern California. Her training is in experimental phonology, and she has worked in language documentation, working with community members who arrived in the United States as resettled refugees. Her current research and administrative work focuses on capacity building for the scholarship of teaching and learning in the field of linguistics. She is the chair of the Department of Linguistics at Boise State University. Anna-Marie Trester is a linguist and story practitioner, one of the founders of the special interest group Linguistics Outside Academia. As the author of Bringing Linguistics to Work and Employing Linguistics, she speaks and gives workshops as career linguist and with organizational partners, Peer Consulting Group, Frameworks Institute, and Anecdote International. She also runs the Career Linguist Career Camp. Topics include informational interviews, entrepreneurship, sociolinguistics, Boise State University, transferable skills, career readiness, and internships. Links to all of the resources and places we discuss in the interview are in the show notes. So listeners, uh, welcome to another edition of the podcast. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. As you've noticed, we now have two guests on, which is a bit unusual, and we're going to be talking about both our guests' experiences with linguistics, where they came from and what their journeys were about, but also, and perhaps more importantly at this juncture, we're going to be talking about this amazing program that they have now at Boise State, which is one of the few in the country in the linguistics department that actually does some career preparation for the uh, 97% of linguists who get a degree and go on not to work in academia. So welcome you both. I'm so glad that you decided to do this. And I cannot wait to hear about your own paths and about the program and the things that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Shall we go with Anna-Marie first? Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your origin story? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the question everybody has to answer is like, how did you get interested in linguistics? So you can sort of start around there. Well, uh, the spark for me was in Costa Rica. I was on a rotary scholarship. So uh, I used to story this as a mistake that happened as part of my scholarship, but let's call it a fortuitous opportunity. I talk about this in my Mm -hmm. book. It was uh, a registration mistake that happened when I was studying abroad, but I arrived to Costa Rica, enrolled in a bunch of classes that they thought I had not taken and not paid for. So I had to go around with my hat in my hand and ask professors to let me take their classes. And the linguistics professor was the nice one and let me into his class. <laughs> but I encourage students not to tell their story that way because that makes linguistics look like something that you, you uh, only get into by accident. Oh, but that's not unusual. So many people that I've talked to have said the same thing. It was like, well, I had to fill up these credits and I had no idea what (laughs) linguistics was. So I just decided to take it. But, you know, it's fine. It doesn't matter, really. It's more about what it was about linguistics that made you go like, oh, this is it. This is the thing I need to be doing, which everybody seems to have had at some point. Well, among linguists, then, I will say uh, that professor in Costa Rica 
uh, lit a fire for me because he saw, and well, all of them, I had several professors there, um, talked about linguistics as something that was absolutely everywhere. And then Mm -hmm. I brought that fire back to the U.S. And the first, um, this department shall remain nameless because... (laughs) Uh, I went to the local university and my professor there told me um, linguistics is a dying field run in the opposite <gasps> direction. Oh and my God. Okay. this person told me um, you will never find a job and nothing <laughs> that you ever study has any use in the real world. Oh and my I God. thank okay. goodness I didn't believe that person <laughs> that I'm a stubborn person. And I actually, that, that, made me uh, want even more to find a way (laughs) to study linguistics and then do linguistics. So um, that's a little bit of my origin story, a little mixture of stubbornness. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Um, So when did you do linguistics for undergrad or just grad? Just grad. So I had done an undergraduate degree in English and um, minor in Spanish, and that's what took me to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. And um, then I yeah, had that fire when I came back, uh, ended up going to New York and got a job that would pay for me to do a master's degree if I could convince them that it was relevant to the work that I was doing. It would help me do my work better. And I think that experience, making that case to get my boss mm-hmm. to pay for a degree in linguistics was probably my first step on this path of, um, you know, telling employers that they need linguists. <laughs> uh, I convinced them and then realized like, yeah, no, it is absolutely everywhere. It helps you with absolutely anything that you want to do. I keep making that. I keep <laughs> building that out. It's for real. I mean that that it it's it's so funny that you got like polar opposite messages, right? Like yeah. linguistics is everywhere. It's like nah, linguistics is nothing. Don't even bother with it. Yeah. What a strange attitude to have. That's that's weird. Um, okay, so um, I'm, my mind is still kind of reeling from that a little bit. Um, so uh, Mikhail, what about you? What what did you do? Well, so I moved to the U.S. when I was in junior high in sixth mm-hmm. grade, and I was an ESL student at the time, right? English as a second language. And I had the kindest, most wonderful, most challenging, but also most caring and compassionate teachers uh, when I was in junior high in that ESL program. And, um, and of course, that meant that I idolized them, and I wanted to be just like them. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, before I graduated from junior high, I already decided that I want to be a junior high ESL teacher, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was in high school, I was able to actually, for credit, um, join this mentorship program where you, like, it was a, a formal mentorship program where they partnered high school students with um, either, it was actually supposed to be elementary school um, classes and students, but because I didn't go to elementary school in the U.S., I asked if it was okay if I could mentor junior high kids and specifically ESL kids at the Mm. junior high that I went to, which was just, you know, across the street from our high school. Um, And so being part of that formal mentorship program, I was able to 
actually work with my ESL teachers. And it solidified for me that what I wanted to do was be an ESL teacher at that junior high, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even knew that some of my teachers were going to retire around the time that I would graduate from uh, college. And so it was like this master plan of like, I'm going to be one of my teachers basically, right? And, um, or just like them. And so in high school, I, you know, I did take Spanish uh, all four years. And in fact, I I took AP Spanish uh, my junior year. And I remember at the end of the year, you know, and I thought, you know, I, my, my dad is actually from South America. And so Mm -hmm. I was learning Spanish so that I could communicate with the older generation in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, being an ESL uh, tutor and mentor, I was exposed to a lot of uh, a lot of my students were bilingual English and Spanish, and it was great to get an opportunity to really learn their native language. Um, and uh, when I took AP Spanish at the end of the year, I went up to Mr. Gonzalez, Senor Gonzalez, and I told him, you know, Senor Gonzalez, I'm going to be a Spanish major when I go to college. Um, and he said, don't you dare. <laughs> and, and I was a little confused, but he said, you know, you're really not good at literary analysis. And oh, most okay. of being, no, it was, it was very true. I mean, <laughs> he didn't need to tell me that. I just had no idea that the Spanish major would be mostly literature classes, uh-huh. but um, I was awful. And I still am awful at literary analysis. Um, and so I, um, so he said, yeah, no, most of the Spanish major is really going to be a literary analysis with a little bit of maybe one or cl- or two classes in linguistics. Uh, you are going to be a, a linguistics major and you should maybe minor in Spanish if you want, <laughs> if you really want to. And, um, and so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I took, um, I decided to take a linguistic anthropology, like an intro mm-hmm. to ling- actually that no, was, a, a, um, introductions to cultural anthropology class at the community college nearby, uh, because I heard that linguistics was going to be taught in there. We get to class. It's a summer class. And the instructor's like, well, this is a condensed class. We're going to cover all but chapter four in the book. And of course, oh. chapter four was linguistics. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. All right. So I was like, oh no. So I actually read it on my own and I was like, yeah, this is definitely the stuff I'm interested in. And so I actually applied to college as a linguistics major. And wow. um the folks at Cal State Northridge didn't really know what to do with me because as we mentioned, as you know, as you guys were talking about this earlier, you know, linguistics is very much a discovery major, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us don't hear the word linguistics until way after high school. And there's very little knowledge about what linguistics is before people take an actual linguistics class. And so my, my professors were kind of like, well, okay, well, all of our classes are upper division. So welcome, freshmen. Uh, you're more than welcome to come to our events. And we'll see you in a couple of years in our class. Right. <laughs> and um, but I was like, OK, but Senor Gonzalez said I would be a good linguistics major. So I'm going to stick to it. And I did. And I'm so glad I did, because it really was, you know, and, and looking back at this, I know that he really saw who I was as a student and as a human. And he knew that what my passion like my passion really was with the Spanish language had to do with my passion for language and for analyzing language and for picking apart language. Um, and he really did see who I was and he was able to give me a recommendation that was, um, 
really you know, appropriate for me. But so, yes, I was a linguistics major throughout my undergrad and my graduate uh, career. I did my PhD at uh, USC and my area, uh, my training is in phonology. Uh, mm-hmm. So I did uh, some experimental phonology, but all theoretical um, in optimality theory. And really throughout my time as a grad student, I really saw my PhD as a as a sort of means to an end. I, it feels kind of bad to say it out loud, but um, I knew that once I had my PhD, I'd be able to teach at the college level. Oh, I skipped a very important part, which was I actually taught at a in a graduate program uh, in education before I even started my PhD program, and I taught linguistics for mm. teachers. And I was brought on to that program by one of my professors at Cal State Northridge, who had been teaching in that program and recommended that I be hired um, to replace her. And um, and I realized, oh, I actually really, really love teaching at the college level. And I love teaching linguistics versus teaching ESL. And, um, and so that really sparked the passion in me uh, for teaching at the college level and for uh, continuing my career in academia. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to do that. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, I taught throughout my time in my PhD, I taught, I continued to teach in this program until I wasn't able to for fellowship reasons. And, um, and really my training has been quite broad because I'm used to working with people who are not necessarily interested in linguistics and to get them fired up about linguistics. Mm. Um, and I was brought on to, uh, uh, to the faculty at Boise state in 2009, um, to fill a sort of general linguistics position. Uh, I was one of two and a half faculty members in linguistics. Um, and we mostly taught non-majors. So our major was pretty small at the time. Uh, we taught a lot of future teachers, and um, but we did have a small but mighty group who was majoring in linguistics. But the curriculum here at the time was really um, formed by what the previous two and a half linguist configuration was uh, and what they were able to teach. And so in 2011, we overhauled our curriculum to have uh, more cohesiveness and to be more intentional about what it means to graduate with a degree, an undergraduate degree in linguistics. Mm-hmm. And uh, recently, over uh, the last couple of years, we've been overhauling our curriculum again, well, not really overhauling, I should say revising our curriculum, uh, because we've recently become a department. And um, we've really been thinking about what does it mean to be a linguist and what are the things that we want um, a linguistics major to to know, right? What are the, the things we want them to know? What are the dispositions we want them to have? And what are the skills that we want them to be able to transfer to really anything that they're interested in doing, uh, whether it be outside of academia or inside? So in your journey, you've really been focused on academia. And Mm -hmm. uh, I am very curious, when you got your PhD, what did you think? Like, did you see many opportunities 
that were open to you at the time? Like, did you feel like you could definitely get some kind of tenure track position or, or teaching position or department position within academia, even given the job market in 2009? Right. I mean, so th- that was that was going to be my like funny point, right, is that <laughs> I graduated in 2009. And uh, for those of you listening to this who were too young to remember this. <laughs> <laughs> Things were bad. <laughs> Things were really bad. Um, so 2008, 2009, uh, that was the crash of, you know, the the housing, the, the popping of the housing bubble. Yeah. And um at the time, I applied for 27 positions that had opened in 2008. By the time the end of 2009 um, closed, uh, only 12 of the 27 were actually able to uh, actually offer positions. Right? Really? Wow. Um, yeah. And so the, the, the market sort of shrank as the year went by. Um, and I felt like, I mean, it, to me, from the moment I started teaching in that graduate program um, at Mount St. Mary's College, uh, I knew that like what I wanted to do was teach at the college level, and I was willing to you know to make my way to it. Right, I was uh, adjuncting mm-hmm. while I was a grad student, and I you know I adjuncted at Mount St. Mary's. I continued to work there. I actually started adjuncting at a Cal State. Uh, and not in linguistics because they didn't have linguistics, but I was determined that I could sort of make myself a jack of all trades and maybe cobble together a position mm-hmm. somehow. Um, so I was willing to be creative about it, um, but also all the commu- all the um, experiences that I had uh, throughout throughout my you know my academic you know career right throughout my undergrad and my grad work really sort of made me the perfect candidate for the position here at mm-hmm. uh, Boise State. And so I really, I was, I was really fortunate that um, the English department at the time was able to hire me uh, because the university also had major hiring freezes mm-hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. Um, the position that I was hired into was, um, was open due to a death in the, on um, the faculty. Oh, wow. So, uh, in a very tragic one. Um, and so this was considered an emergency hire. It was a permanent emergency hire, but the department was able to then make the case, right? Like, hey, this is really important because we couldn't, you know, uh, we, we can't go on offering any courses in this field unless we hire one more person. And so that was, uh, I was, I was very fortunate that they wanted me, right? That I was able to fill that mm-hmm. position. Um, but yeah, that that year was very, very rough. And I'd say it was the start of a very, very rough wave of years um, mm-hmm. for many people. But I don't, I think there was a level of naivete on my, on my part where I don't think I ever thought I wouldn't get a job mm. eventually mm-hmm. as a tenure track faculty in academia. Um, I just thought it would take a long time and I would find a magical sort of combination of things that would allow me to create it. Um, and I was waiting, I was willing to wait for it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. it just ended up not happening. That's so interesting. Uh, There were really, as you were describing all these different 
um, contingencies that came together to allow you to do this thing, which you were sort of clearly meant to do all along. I don't know, that sounds a little mystical, but it, that's what it seems like. Like you were saying, you know, you're just the yeah. right person for this job at this time, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about how things were crashing at that time, it's never really come back, right? You know, right. like things have never gotten that much better and the number of academic positions that are open every year decreases and instead of increasing, it's very rare to find um, positions actually opening up for any reason besides somebody died or, mm -hmm. you know, someone had to go and, and leave and they couldn't do it anymore. Well, it's funny if I was just going to say I graduated the same time. <laughs> I yeah. didn't realize that right. we graduated exactly the same time, Michal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so Anna Marie, your career journey has been um, sort of in academia and out of academia now kind of, I don't want to say coming <laughs> back to academia yet, but it's been in and out. So why don't yeah. you just talk a little bit about um, what you did after you got your, your degree? Well, yeah, I was on that same market that Michelle is describing. Yeah. Um, I credit Deborah Schifrin. She uh, was one of my advisors um, at that time, she had been, um, well, the year before, Georgetown University had invited all of their departments to create a professionally oriented master's degree. She was one of eight programs that took up that initiative to create in the linguistics department. It was called the, and it still is called, the Master's in Language <laughs> and Communication. Um, she encouraged me to apply. Um, I had kind of treated my past life as something that happened very far away and long ago. She was really excited about, so the job I was saying that paid for my master's degree was an investment bank. And I spent three years having to make the case to my bosses about why this was relevant. So I guess I must have, it must have come forward a lot in conversations with me that I saw the connections to the business world. Um, and she'd seen me during the course of my, um, my schooling too. I created my own internship. Um, there was a documentary film being produced in, in the Washington DC area called do you speak American? And mm -hmm. I knew it was happening. And I just, I, <laughs> I found every single way to try to apply or get myself an internship there. I ended up going to a happy hour that had nothing to do with anything. It was the student, like the graduate student leadership. What do you call it? Like the, the, the association for graduate students. I had a leadership position, which reminds me to encourage people take on leadership positions. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we were at this happy hour just blowing off steam at the end of the semester and using up our budget that we had <laughs> extra money to burn and I sat next to this guy who was just saying to the table like oh I was just asked today at my place of work to find a sociolinguist and he was saying it was that, like <laughs> can you imagine anything more bizarre like what even is that and I was like I'm a sociolinguist where do you work you know and he said I work at uh, do you speak American McNeil Lair Productions and I was like are you kidding me and wow. then to his credit, he didn't run for the hills, but I told him, I have been trying to apply to that project for two years. So she knew, Deborah Schifrin knew that I had the initiative and I saw the applicability and I um, kind of had that tenacity to, um, there was a position that had just opened to um, provide the 
connection for the students in the MA program uh, to figure out how the theoretical classes, all the information that they were learning could be applied. So um, that job was uh, open. She encouraged me to apply for it um, and reminded me that I had the I had forgotten, you know, I needed to be reminded. You had this experience with an investment bank. You had this experience working for a, you know, a journalist um, in the field of journalism. Um, My dissertation had me working in a nonprofit. So this is what she said to me, like, you've got already a wide range of professional experiences. You can help students. You have what you need to to help students uh, learn about careers. So you know, my, my life changed because of that little nudge that she gave me. Mm-hmm. Then she told me I needed to do a hundred informational interviews. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had no idea what that even would, uh, I didn't know where to start. Or, uh, and uh, yeah, a hundred interviews is a bit, it was a bit terrifying at the beginning. I don't know that I actually got to a hundred, but by the time I'd done uh, a handful, a couple dozen, I knew that that was something I really enjoyed and, and I did that job then um, for six and a half years. And um, at Georgetown, I also taught a professional development course. And when I taught that course six times, uh, I think that's a magic number. <laughs> I could <laughs> suddenly see a book. So I wrote a book about, uh, you know, drawing from the insights of the informational interviews and the course that I taught, um, telling some of the stories that uh, linguists linguists doing exciting and interesting things, um, sharing their ideas and wisdom and encouragement uh, with a linguistic lens on the whole career, mm-hmm. um, thinking about careers, you know, not just listing and, and saying these are all the careers you can do, but I wanted to show how people mm-hmm. use their linguistics to help them approach this prospect of convincing somebody to hire them you know Mm -hmm. Um, so then yeah I wrote that book in 2017 Um, in 2017 I sent an email to all the linguistics departments listed on the LSA website and then I did it again in 2018 and then again in 2019 and that's how I met Michal you you haven't mentioned this, but you've worked obviously well, at companies yeah. outside that were not at, I mean, they weren't at the academy. They were actual real companies where you were getting paid to be yes. a linguist and to express linguistic ideas. Well, partly what happened was I started writing that book, you know, and realized I feel a little bit like a hypocrite telling people mm-hmm. you can do so many things with your degree in linguistics. Because uh, I was at that time uh, working in academia, you know, and I was saying there's so much beyond academia that we can think about, and I I didn't like that feeling, <laughs> so it was part of the impetus. Uh, but again, actually, it was informational interviews. I I was teaching a professional development course. I was encouraging my students to do informational interviews. They told me, well, uh, we're doing informational interviews. Shouldn't you be doing informational interviews too? And I thought, well, sure, I'll model. the. And I uh, happened to be talking to the right person at the right time. Um, there is a think tank in Washington, D.C. that at that time had just done an overhaul of their learning, the learning side of the organization. Um, so that's the Frameworks Institute. Um, 
I joined at a time when they were hiring like six people to build a team um, with a whole new approach to um, teaching their research. So I got to do that for, uh, again, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I still consult for them, but um, I don't work full time for them anymore. Uh, I started on an entrepreneurial uh Adventure I was just going to say that. Yeah. So so in addition to having the academic experience and then the experience of working for a company, I mean, you, you've done that several times. You've also gone down the entrepreneurial path to kind of make this uh, calling, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to turn it into an actual career to yeah. convince people that they need to hire linguists because you need a linguist everywhere all the time. And that has changed. Um, you know, I've I've learned from the people that I work with, um, what supports are needed, what approaches, what, you know, practices really help uh, cultivate these abilities to communicate what it is that we know. Um, Lately, I've been more interested, I've become more interested in supporting the community of people who have jobs and are trying to reconnect to their linguistics training that they feel has been maybe dormant or, you know, just because Mm -hmm. they're not in an academic environment and they're not talking to linguists all the time. So I've created a community for linguists, um, most of whom are working outside of academia. And we have various um, activities and get togethers and um, work sessions, co-working sessions. I've become a huge fan Mm -hmm. of co-working sessions where, you know, most of the time what we're doing is working, but um, when it's a group of linguists working on a thing and you come to the check-in and you say, I'm really struggling with this thing, you know, another linguist can say, oh, I remember I read this article by Muriel Seville-Troiki that talked about mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And suddenly we're, we're, we're putting something, you know, that is actually on our work plate, but we're finding a way to put linguistics into it. And uh, mm-hmm. we've really found that to be, it was a surprise. I didn't know that that's where I was going to be focusing, but it turns out to be really helpful to mm-hmm. be able to approach a problem like conducting a performance evaluation of an employee who's, you know, on a PIP, a performance improvement plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can bring stuff that you know from your pragmatics or your conversation mm-hmm. analysis or your cross-cultural communication. Like you have so many tools that you might just need to be reminded to try to, to utilize. So to, to do the plugging, um, all of these links will be in the show notes for who are <laughs> listening. So um, you actually have two books. The first one was called Bringing Linguistics to Work. Um, I think I'm in that book. Uh, as, uh, it's about uh, the storytelling approach to your career. It's awesome. And then the newer book is called Employing Linguistics, Thinking and Talking About Careers for Linguists. So uh, you can get them both on Amazon. I will absolutely put the links in. And then I will also put the link in for Career Linguist, which is what you were just talking about, where people yeah. can join up with other like-minded folks. And, um, I, you know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking – part of the reason that that's necessary is not in every case, but in a lot of cases when people do get jobs, obviously their job title isn't linguist and they might be the only person with a linguistics right. background 
mm-hmm. their place. So they don't really have anybody else they can talk to about linguistics. It's a little bit different at some of the tech companies where they hire specifically like computational linguists or natural language processing oriented linguists. And then you might have a team of linguists who are working together. But in many cases, it's just you. You're the only linguist that's there. And you know, you, you kind of are doing things on your own. So to have this sort of community where you can talk shop with people is really incredibly valuable. Yeah. And, you know, now that I'm writing books now, I think my next book will be this. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated by this, uh, what it's like to be a group one of a group of linguists in a professional setting and what it's like to be the only one I've, I've noticed a pattern well I've noticed enough patterns to know that I'm interested in learning more about Charlotte Lindy talked about it as um, like a shoal of fish Mm -hmm. that you're swimming with this shoal of fish and that there's ways that that shapes who you are and how you think and when you have a little bit more awareness of your own agency you know, maybe you can bring in a linguist after you've mm-hmm, been mm-hmm. able to like make the case. And so how you can shape that shoal of fish and what that might, what that swimming might look like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's something that I, I feel I've heard from a lot of people is that when they are the first linguist that gets hired by a company, um, they feel a responsibility to get more linguists in there, yeah. right? Especially when, when you see what the need is, right? And you're like, I totally know linguists could do this job. You should be hiring other linguists. So yeah. sometimes being the first is difficult, but it's also really good because you can be the one to open the door and bring in other folks to, to help out and to raise the awareness of Mm -hmm. what linguists can do, what their abilities and skills are, and that it's not just, you know, uh, something very narrow, which again is what people think about when they think about linguistics, because they're still thinking about it like, you know, translation or whatever. Diagramming a sentence. Diagramming a sentence. Yeah. All that (laughs) stuff. It's not that. I, I wanted to just interject and say, you know, our students, have have pointed out to us they've come to us and said you know my boss wants more linguists at the, mm-hmm. at my job right and um and it's always really surprising because their jobs are not necessarily anything linguisticy or things that require linguists but uh, a lot of our skills are transferable mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and trans- th- there's translation that could be done um of our skills into so many kinds of jobs and um, and it's and it's pretty great that we have so many ambassadors out there in non-academic jobs uh, being linguists uh, but really just being really great humans and being great thinkers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and showing the world um, you know the benefits of hiring a linguist and and so in some cases it's it, it could be driven by the boss right mm-hmm. um, a lot of times that's been the case with our former students coming back to us saying, hey, my boss wants more of me. Yeah, totally. And, and I think um, to what you were just saying, the community of linguists who are employed outside academia are like to a person that I've met so giving and so generous and mm-hmm. so willing to help other people. Um, and that's part of like what we've been building ever since Anna Marie and Anastasia started the Linguistics Beyond Academia group with, within the LSA is mm-hmm. just trying to provide a community where people who have been out there can make that connection with people who 
have to leave academia because there's no jobs in academia. So what are you going to do? Well, now there's people who can help you, who will talk to you, who will provide advice, who might be convincing their bosses that it's time to hire more linguists. And I feel like this community, as big and, and sort of um, disjointed as it is, has been just wonderful for this. You know, there was not something like this 20 years ago, and now there is, and it's just growing and getting better. So here's the transition, which I'm now going to make. <laughs> Part of what we've all tried to do is to raise awareness of this fact that the job market sucks. There just aren't a lot of jobs. And so if you've got a linguistic background, you're going to have to get a job outside academia. Most departments are not providing any sort of help in that way. Some are. A few are. Obviously, Georgetown, um, Arizona is another one. But now you're doing it at Boise State. And what you are doing, because it's so different is an amazing template for departments to take on for what they can do in a way that is not going to require a huge investment of time or of money, but yet provides really tactical, practical information about what it, it is like, what it's going to be like when you get out there, and what kind of career paths there are. Because so many departments are still stuck in the idea of, well, you know, you probably you'll get a job as an academic. Not true. And if you don't get a job as an academic, well, what are you going to do? Well, you could become a lexicographer, I guess. You know, that they have such a limited, I'll use the word, imagination as to what linguists could actually do when, you know, compared to the incredible array of jobs that are open right now. So I, I want to talk now about what you are doing at Boise State and how this is working out for your students. Excellent. Well, I'll let Anna Marie start us off. Well, um, I guess I'll start from my perspective, because at that time, that was all that I had. <laughs> I was saying that I, I had um, been reaching out to departments saying I have this book, I, I envision the possibility of giving a workshop and and um, when 2020 came crashing down, I had had a few schools booked. I was getting to, you know, the point where I was having, um, you know, uh, maybe six or seven in a semester where I would come and give a workshop. And Boise State was the only one in 2020, in spring of 2020, that was able to uh, pivot quickly enough to, to do the workshop virtually. And at the time, I talked a little bit more with Michal, and, and she was saying, you know, stay tuned. We're doing this big um, overhaul, and let's start thinking about other other opportunities for, for really building this into the curriculum. So I stayed tuned. <laughs> uh, last year, for the first time, I taught a course. And then I feel like this year, with the new department, um, I'm building out my responsibilities. I'm now the internships coordinator. And um, the internships coordination has been super fun because it enables me to get out and talk to employers and kind of, you know, build out that. Like, uh, it's really all about relationships, right? So um, making relationships with employers, having these conversations, this is what a linguist can do, you know, um, what are your needs and really listening to them and trying to kind of slot in, well, a linguist could maybe help you with this initiative that you have for, you know, making Boise a welcoming community, or, you know, you've got this language access initiative happening at the state level. Um, what could a linguist help you with at, at, the, at the city level? Um, but I think I should 
turn over to Michal to provide some more context on that. So I love our origin story for our <laughs> partnership and our collaboration, <laughs> um, mostly because, you know, I, I am very involved at the LSA and um, I remember seeing information about the special interest group and thinking, oh, I should really think about how I connect my students to the SIG because our students don't come to us wanting to be a professor in linguistics either, right? So like, it's not like, you know, so we're an undergraduate program and it's not like our students come to us because they want to be professors and they want to be in academia. They end up wanting to, some of them end up wanting to be in academia. Um, but for the most part, they come to us because they're passionate about language. Um, and in many cases, they're working against their uh, parents' you know, advice and are not looking at something that's very specific that's going to lead to a very specific career path. Um, but they're all very passionate about language, as you know, we all know, right? Like, that's how we get into linguistics. And, um, and I remember just kind of thinking in the back of my mind, like, oh, I should really think about ways to find connections for my students in this SIG, right? And I think I even went to a mixer once, but I sort of, you know, hid in a corner and was thinking like, this is a really cool group of people. I don't belong here. Um, because really, no, it was really, it was really great. I mean, I thought I actually was very happy that there was such a group at the LSA, but I sort of felt like this isn't meant for me. I should let other, I'm an, I'm an extreme extrovert. Right. And I take a lot of space up and I'm very aware of how much space I take up. And so I was just kind of thinking like, okay, but this isn't supposed to be people for me. I have like everybody else in the LSA. Right. And so I, I, I think I sort of walked out, but I was like, okay, here are the cool players in the room. And I remember seeing um, Anna Marie and seeing Gretchen McCulloch and just mm -hmm. kind of thinking like, okay, note to self, somehow connect with the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we did get a whole bunch of, uh, you know, solicitations from Madame Marie about the book. <laughs> and at the time we, we didn't have, we didn't have the funds to be able to, to, to do anything here in person. Um, we, you know, being in Boise, Idaho, we're not a hub city. And so like mm -hmm. bringing people in is sometimes hard. Um, and when, when we were part of the English department, um, you know, we'd have to make, you know, sort of arguments at all sorts of levels, at the institution to be able to bring folks in. Right. And so um, we have to preserve our, our argumentation for spending money. Um, and in 2020, we had the opportunity to ask for things because um, our institution is very, very student centered. I should say that um, I, I can't say it enough. Mm -hmm. uh, our administration cares about student success, cares about our students feeling connected and being resourced to succeed, right? And um, and there are lots of different initiatives. We just never found the right initiative for it. And in 2020, at the beginning of summer, um, we we were connected to our alumni. Our alumni started contacting us, all, all of us in the program. So there are uh, five of us who teach in, in linguistics. And different alumni were reaching out to us saying, hey, I finally left that job that I hated. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> will you serve as a reference for me? Or um, will you look over my CV? Or um, do you know of anybody hiring linguists? And so 
we saw that there was a need for, you know, there was, there was a need there for sort of retraining our alumni and connecting our alumni to one another and, and helping them connect to their story, connect to who they are as linguists and what it is that they can, that they have to offer. Um, and so that's when we reached out to Anna Marie and, um, and we, we also partnered with our career services folks. And so during that summer of 2020, we had two workshops and we invited our current students and our alumni. And it was pretty well attended, uh, especially because people were really just looking for ways to connect to one another. This is pre-vaccines. It was at the beginning of masking up, but it was like all of us had been disconnected from one another for several months already. A lot of our students were just feeling really isolated. And it was a great way to connect with one another. And so um, we were very happy to be able to partner with Anna Marie and with our career services folks. And we did so we did one workshop on like, you know, beefing up your CV with our career services folks. And then Anna Marie came in with her storytelling uh, workshop and with just being a really wonderful, warm, um, you know, person who's knowledgeable about how to get people to think about who they are and to tell their story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, so that was in summer 2020 and that whole year also coincided the 2020, 2021 year coincided with, um, our department restructuring and becoming a linguistics department. And, um, in fall 21, we, uh, we got to, think about what it was that we wanted our students to um, to get as linguistics department graduates, right? And um, that coincided with a directive from our college and our institution uh, to actually add some reflective components for career training for our students. Now, the directive it came from the folks who were looking at student success and looking at our um, the success of our, our uh, alumni and realizing, you know, our students are not good at reflecting on the transferability of their skills mm -hmm. and knowledge from their degrees across the university, except for maybe the College of Engineering and the College of Business uh, and Economics. Um, we need to get them thinking about that. And so uh, there was a sort of mandated requirement from the university to include a reflective activity in a single required course in your major so that every single student in your major before graduating actually has the time and space to reflect on those skills and, and knowledge um, and to think about transferability to a career and or a job outside, you know, after graduating. And um, in our group, in our core group of, of faculty, we, we talked about this and we thought, you know, we should really have a course that would prepare our students. Uh, having just one reflective activity is not gonna be enough. We had the opportunity to convert some of our old requirements from the English department. Um, and we thought, you know, it'd be amazing if all of our students had to take a career readiness course of some sort. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of us are looking at each other and we're like, well, do you know, I don't know how to prepare students for careers. <laughs> None of us had careers outside of academia. We can, and we've all prepared our students for, you know, going into graduate school and going into academia quite well. Our students have a really good track record for those of them who want to go to grad school. And I immediately thought, 
let's bring Anna Marie in mm-hmm. and let's let's partner with her rather than like initially it was like maybe she can teach us how to teach our students and then it was like wait <laughs> or she can just teach our students right yeah, cut, cut out um, the middleman <laughs> cut out the middleman and, and I um, I hope that Anna Marie would agree with this one of the great things about our our group our faculty group is that we really are focused on our student success and we really care mm-hmm. about our student success um, and we care about it at like fundamentally at the individual relational level, right? Um, not because we want, we care that we have good numbers or whatever, right? Um, and so when we had the workshops in summer 2020, the entire faculty was at the workshops. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. Um, every single thing we do, we all show up. Um, and it's, I mean, we're a small group, right? Uh, there's only five of us, but, but we're small and mighty. Um, and we do like we actually quote unquote we've farmed out our career readiness to Anna Marie, but we try and, and get involved in as many things as possible that Anna Marie offers to our students so that we are aware of what those resources are and so that Anna Marie also feels like she's, you know, one of us and um she is supported by us. It was remarkable. Last year I had a, a day. We had a I teach remotely because I live in Tucson, but then um, Boise State brings me to campus for a week, and we had a day that was a day of, and we'll do it again this year, um, just career reflection, and Mikhail had said, I'm going to invite all the faculty, and yeah, I'm not used to all the faculty showing up, so I was actually a little (laughs) bit nervous, but everyone showed up, and like, use me as you need to be used. So everybody jumped on in and like provided feedback on portfolios, allowed themselves to be informationally interviewed, right? Because they all have a career that they can, you know, be informationally interviewed about, you know, so they really, we are doing the teaching the teachers how to teach career, um, you know, and it, it, we flip it on its head. We just did it for this. Uh, we just had an information session on the internships. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, here's the internships that are available, but really let's flip it on its head and tell us what you're interested in. And they'll start building from, from that vantage point. Oh, you're interested in Japanese culture. Okay. So that let's Google what, what organizations mm-hmm. support that in Boise. Oh, here's this organization. Oh, let's go to LinkedIn. Who do we know? Well, this was a former student of mine. This is somebody that I've worked with. This is some event that I attended. And you just build, you build that way to the, maybe we create an internship. Maybe we create a job, you know, but um, we're certainly going to find relationships that we could build that will uh, maybe have that outcome. But in any case, build relationships for our students to um, see the applicability of their skills, have conversations with people who care about this stuff, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And as we've said, I think on every single interview I've done on this podcast, it's all about the networking, right? Like Mm -hmm. it, it comes down to um, all, of course, what, you know, but it's really who, you know, and, People, I think almost every person that I've spoken to, with a few exceptions, the jobs that they've gotten have been because they knew somebody or reached out to somebody or somebody somebody. else knew somebody. somebody. Right. So it's, 
Yeah. It's not that it has to be a person within the circle of people you already know, but you you have to see beyond the people that you're friends with or that, that you know, right? It's like, who do they know? And then who do they know beyond that? And, you know, what kind of association do I have with people? And it is a job to do that, right? It's, it's not um, just something you sign up for and it happens to you. Like, there's a lot of work that goes into mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. the payoff for it is not just now. So it's not just the job that you're getting now. Every time you do this, it adds to your you know, sort of pile of XP. And then when you go to get another job three years later, it's that same group of people, but now it's bigger and you can reach out to them. And then people are going to reach out to you and you do them a favor and then they're going to return that favor. So it's a, a, a constant um, sort of currency exchange in goodwill and recommendations that goes on in the network that just goes on for your whole entire life. You know, I'm still doing it. I'm semi-retired now, but it still happens to me with people that I met 20 years ago. Um, it never stops, but that's it's great. And the feeling of being able to help people Everybody loves that. And every mm-hmm. linguist that I've spoken to is more than willing to do that, that kind of, you know, goodwill currency exchange. Yeah. And I, I will add this, um, because we are doing this with Anna Marie, um, and because we're a new department, honestly, uh, we're looking at ways to, you know, to market our department to incoming students, right. To, mm-hmm. pr- to prospective students, and so one of the things that we did this year was, you know, start our, our own LinkedIn page for Ooh, the department. Mm-hmm. And, but none of us know how to use LinkedIn. Right? <laughs> none of us. Uh-huh. So this, um, this, uh, this information session that Anna Marie just mentioned that we just had about internship, she also sort of spent time teaching us faculty members how to use LinkedIn, mm-hmm. right? And, and in a way, right, I mean, in most of it is to, to make sure that we're connecting our students. but. Um, it's, it's that thing about like, none of us use LinkedIn to actually create the networks. We mm-hmm. use LinkedIn to approve connection requests, right? From mm-hmm. our former students or from people we meet. And those, especially our former students, um, but also like our extended networks are such great resources for our students. And mm-hmm. so having, having the ability to do more than just approve connections mm-hmm. is is key for us as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to, for us to be able to uh, to really think about, okay, how do we how do we help connect our students by becoming more competent users of this mm-hmm. platform? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to um, take a moment for you to describe very like nitty gritty. When a student mm-hmm. is in your department, what are you offering them now, like specifically? So you know, um, requirements, uh, workshops and things like that. I would like you to describe those items, please. Excellent. Um, so specifically for career readiness, we have a two credit career readiness course, right? It's called employing linguistics because we stole Anna Marie's uh, <laughs> title with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> with sure. her permission. Yes. I mean, it's her course, right? Um, and, uh, it is a 10 week course that is uh, rem- done remotely. So it's not online asynchronous, but it's a remotely taught class on Zoom because Anna Marie is the instructor for the course. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the 10 weeks, we do a, a one day workshop here in town and Anna Marie comes and, um, and I'll let her explain exactly what she does. It's 
you know, in the actual course. But in addition to that, our students have always had the opportunity to earn I mean, they, they have to earn six credits at the 400 level in linguistics. And as part of that, they can do internships that are related mm -hmm. to linguistics. And so, um, for example, I have a lab. And so uh, students and former students who've, uh, who have wanted to could actually be interns in our lab and earn academic credit. Uh, in many cases, also earn money at the same time. Um, we have uh, students who tutor for our English language support programs. We have students who tutor for our introduction to linguistics course. And uh, they can do all of that for internship credit. So that's credit at the 400 level. Uh, and that counts to fulfill that requirement of two 400 level linguistics classes. And the idea is, you know, in completing an internship, they're doing more than just working in something related to linguistics, but they're also reflecting. They're taking the time to actually sit there and reflect on what it is that they're learning, how they're transferring the skills that they learn in class to things that they're doing out there um, in, in the real world or in the lab or, you know, in tutoring. Because um, the internships are not limited to just things on campus. We actually want them to do internships outside uh, of campus and um, they can earn credits. Uh, and in many cases, they can also get paid for uh, those internships. And so those are ways that students can earn credits uh, that employing linguistics class is now required of all of our students. Oh. And it's a way for us. Yeah. So it's required. That's it. As of this fall, all incoming students have to take that, uh, that class before they graduate. And, um, and it's very exciting to us that they're getting that piece uh, as a required piece. And it helped us, um, you know, it helps us actually uh, meet our program learning outcomes better because as part of our learning outcomes, it's really important to us that our students are able to actually make arguments using sound, you know, uh, linguistic knowledge, right? Um, and they're learning how to do that as part of this class because they're mm -hmm. thinking about, like, they're, they're thinking about how to transfer the skills mm -hmm. and the knowledge that they've gained in their courses. Um, and I think as we, as we move away from like that first trial year of, of offering this class, students are going to have more and more experience in their previous courses and they're going to be knowledgeable enough to actually say like, yeah, I see how this translates to say working at the headquarters for Love Every, which is a company that's headquarters, uh, headquartered here in, in Boise and specializes in child, uh, child development. Um, but they have the skills to, to do that work. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, those are the requirements. If I could chime in too, so as I'm coming up to speed with my role as internships coordinator, you know, I'm learning there's work all around the university. Um, there's service, service learning. Um, there's ways that career readiness, career development articulates with so many other initiatives that are happening at the university. Um, the Center for Teaching and Learning, career services, and just kind of finding out what other what you're called if, if if someone's listening to this and they're situated at a university like the career services have gone and gotten a department of labor grant um, such that any student who can 
can say, you know, they've identified an opportunity, but it's maybe an organization that doesn't have money for an internship. There's this Department of Labor grant that is, it's it's a major initiative happening across the country um, to try to, you know, this is a, this is an objective of our government is trying to make career ready. Um, well, there's a few initiatives, right? They want to make, they want to build collaborations between academia and the, the community and they want to make students career ready and they're, they've got money. They put money into this. So, Well, and I think they've recognized that one way to close uh, the equity gap in uh, serving, best serving all of our students is to um, make sure that having having opportunities to get internships uh, doesn't uh, hamper a student from being able to pay their bills or Mm -hmm. to, you know, um, and so really... um, ensuring that students who seek out internships in the nonprofit world uh, don't have to also have a 20 hours a week job on top of it, or, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that they have the opportunity to do this, you know, skill building activity uh, without it hampering their ability to, to live is mm-hmm. really important. Mm-hmm. So the way you've done it by offering this course remotely um, and having the content that Anna Marie already has, and then having guest speakers come in once in a while to talk to them also. Including Um, Laurel Sutton. Including me. (laughs) I did it. It was great. I had such a good time. The students were awesome and they asked really good questions and and that was cool. So this, it seems to me, oh good, I'm glad. This is an incredibly cost-effective way for departments to do this, right? It's, it's very targeted. It's, um, it's less organizationally burdensome for them to do it because it's an online type of course. It still it counts for real credits. I mean, it's not you know a, a, a thing that they do just because they feel like it. The fact that you've made it a requirement is amazing. I'm really I'm so pleased that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the reason that I really wanted to talk with you on on the podcast was to <laughs> every department should be doing this, in my opinion, right? Like it should be this easy for them to set it up and do it. Not not that it's an easy thing to do, but compared to um, the efforts that they put into some of the other classes, this seems like such a frictionless way to do it. You know, it's, it's kind of clean and simple and it gets the information out there and it gets the students involved. It gets the alumni involved mm-hmm, and it gets absolutely. them involved in, it gets the students involved with the career resources that already exist on campus that they might not know exist mm-hmm. also. Yes, absolutely. And my hope is that this could serve as a model. Um, And I think as an intermediate step, uh, my hope is that we can actually help others in achieving this, Um, finding even lower barrier ways for them Mm -hmm. to offer this to their students. So one of the things that we partnered with Anna Marie on is the ability for her to offer students outside of Boise State, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. same course that she's doing with us at the same time, like as you know, like I would love for other students, um, for other institutions, students to actually join our course um, and they're able to do it. We actually have a mechanism for them to do it um, through our extended studies and um, and to actually have access to Anna Marie more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, you know, the true gem there. But I think then also they have access to other 
students from across the country who Mm -hmm. are sort of thinking about the job market um, in the same way as our students are and uh, other ways of networking with their peers as well. And so, you know, I think um, there are ways to do this uh, that are pretty low barrier, um, you know, like our, our partnership with Anna Marie, but really there could be something bigger here. There could be a way for us to sort of, centralize this in some way and for mm. folks to be able to take advantage of it um, yeah. as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I want I wanted you to talk about this. So you have a synchronous class, but you will also have an asynchronous class coming in the future. Yes, that's right. Talk about that. How is that going to work and yeah. what's the content going to be? So I'm going to build it off of the course that uh, I'm currently teaching and, you know, it, it will feature all of the same activities and uh, exercises that we do as part of class. So these are, you know, my take on a lot of the career. I always bring a linguistic lens to any of the, uh, because as linguists, we have, we have knowledge to bring to these questions, you know, to, to the task of talking about yourself, to the task of asking for things. Uh, I'm a, interactional sociolinguists so like for example mm-hmm. we've been talking about the ask you find you take the time to find a little thing to ask for well this has to do with like pragmatics and to do with uh you know recipient design and having to do with uh you know all of my anthropological and ethnographic uh experience you know informs this idea that there's this if you can find something simple that you can ask, that's a five minute, something that somebody can help you with in five minutes, that's actually a mechanism mm-hmm. for building uh, community and building relationships mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking about positioning, you know, you as a student think that you're asking, you're asking a huge favor, but actually we know mm-hmm. that like asking for a favor is actually a way to make somebody, it gives somebody an opportunity to do something uh generous but that makes them feel good and it makes them feel connected you know um it's so true though i i mean it gets back to what we were saying about things like in informational interviews and the network and building the network people love to do favors right like it, it's so mm-hmm. rare that somebody turns you down for something that is really simple and yeah it's all about the perspective because the person who's asking sees it as a huge imposition right and the person who is being asked is like I could do that in my sleep. That's not a problem. Um, and I think there's still, for students anyway, especially for graduate students, there's there's an academic um, point of view that becomes um, unacknowledged where in academia, asking for favors is a huge deal, right? Mm-hmm. It's a huge imposition and you don't dare do it to someone you don't know or you haven't met or if they're, you know, they're very prestigious. It feels like a huge ask and you're kind of taught that it is a huge ask. Mm. So you shouldn't just like, don't do it unless it's super important. Whereas in industry, people ask for stuff all the time and it's no big deal. And if they can't do it, they can't do it. And nobody gets mad at you Mm -hmm. for asking Mm -hmm. or holds it against you, you know, and they think, oh God, that person wasted 2.5 seconds of my time by asking. Like, that's not how the world works. So it's reframing Mm -hmm. your view of the ask and the, the asker to what is a normal thing. And, and for some people, it's just really different from their whole experience. 
experience. So uh, it's, I think it's when we have the mixers, like you were talking about, Mikhail, and mm -hmm. um, the other things, like we always try to stress that to the students, like, just ask, man, it's okay. Just ask. It's fine. And they always seem very like, really, it's okay to do that. It's like, yeah, it's really okay to do that. Honest. It really is. And it's really interesting um, that you brought up that in academia, you know, asking for favors is a huge ask because I don't, I don't know that maybe, maybe I just never noticed, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm not from the U S right. There are some programmatic things that I don't get uh, and some cultural things that I don't get still, even though I moved here when I was 11. Um, and I, you know, I'm often, you know, you can, often find me say, you know, to somebody like, that's not a huge ask, or of course, no problem, whatever. And, and I'm often sort of taken aback by the sort of politeness strategies that people mm -hmm. use when they ask mm -hmm. you for a favor, mm -hmm. like, like people will go out of their way to exaggerate just how big of a favor they're about to ask you. And then it's yeah. something where it's like, really like, oh, can I have this piece of paper that's on your desk? <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I know you're so busy. And da, da, da. Okay. can I have this piece of paper that's right in front of you? Like, really? Like, and so I, you know, I, I sort of want to challenge that by saying, you know, there, there could be a perception of that, but really at the, the end of the day, if we're not here to serve our students, you know, um, then why are we here? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. Yes. You know, some of us are, you, you know, are some of our work is scholarly and uh, that's really exciting and it's lovely, but really, you know, in academia, like we're here to serve our students. And when a student needs to be connected with somebody else or when they need a letter of recommendation or they need advice on all sorts of things, right. Like shouldn't, that not be a big ask. I think this is, I'm sorry, I'm getting us way, way, way <laughs> off topic, but I mean, Fantastic. I think that's a problem, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, this is an extremely important conversation and I don't think it happens enough. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, my own experience in um, undergrad and then grad, I don't think anybody ever said it to me, but mm -hmm. it was certainly conveyed to me that, asking was like, you don't do it unless you have a really good reason and you're pretty sure you're going to get a positive response, right? Like it wasn't, there was no point in asking somebody for something if you didn't think they were going to say yes, which just cuts off a whole line of, yeah, it's awful. you know, like you're, you're talking yourself out of stuff without even doing it. And plus you don't even know, like, how would you know whether that person is going to say yes or not? There's all this face threatening stuff too. When it comes to talking about career, if you are asking somebody about a career that the person that you're asking doesn't know anything about, you don't want to come in and create a huge face threatening ask. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, for sure. It's why I shared the example that I shared at the very beginning, though, that like some people may greet you with like, this is a dead field run, get out of here, there are no jobs. Yeah. You know, that mm -hmm. might happen too. And we have to know that even if we ask somebody and they're not receptive or we don't get the answer that we want, you know, that doesn't mean that the question is wrong. It just means right. that you need mm -hmm. to ask it to more people. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I, I don't want to be flip. And I, I know there are certain departments where if you dare to mention, whisper that there is an interest in leaving academia, um, it could be detrimental to your career. It could mean that you lose a mm -hmm. mentor. It, it, it does. I know that that is true. Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, I've had enough experience and years under my belt, maybe, to know that there are 
so many ways that our training could be applied and the world needs us. I think that's where I come from this is that I can Mm -hmm. see so many problems that linguists are uniquely equipped to solve that, you know, in the broader scheme of things, maybe (laughs) the world somewhere else needs your expertise and it might be something that you Mm -hmm. really are passionate about. And, you know, don't let one um, bridge troll, that's a metaphor that one of my students loves to use. (laughs) If this bridge troll says, no, you can't cross my bridge, go find another bridge, you know? Absolutely. I would also say, because I'm expecting that for this particular episode of the podcast, we might have more than the normal number of faculty people who are listening to it, because this is um, slightly more oriented towards, you know, course building and and what you do in the department. Um, That people who have been in academia for a long time, as you say, like they don't really know about careers, but that's okay, because there are other people who do know about it. So you don't have to know about it. But what you do is you don't say to people, there's no future in linguistics or there's no jobs or yeah. go be a lexicographer or whatever. You say, I don't know, but there are people who know. And let's try mm-hmm. to, to connect you with the people who do know so that you're not just floundering. And that is, as you were saying, Michal, serving your students. Like that's yes. the way that you serve your students is connecting them with the things that they want. And it's perfectly fine if you don't know. You don't have to investigate and learn everything there is about leaving academia you just have to put your students in touch with the people who are and that's the best thing that you could possibly do and you know p.s it doesn't degrade the degree and it doesn't degrade the program and it it isn't you know i it, it sticks in my brain how many times I've heard from people, and this was said to me as well, I have a career outside academia. You say to someone who's a professor, and what is the response? Oh, that's too bad. Sorry. You know, like, come on, man, what kind of response is that? That's not what you say to people. That's not even polite. Right. Well, and, you know, I do want to bring up a couple of points, and, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. Not trying to defend my people or anything. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I know when I was graduating with my PhD, I very much remember that one of my professors mentioned something about a metric of some sort that was used by the university to determine uh, success of graduate programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that metric very much relied on how many of your uh, graduating PhD class uh, are actually going into tenure track positions, right? right. So not, not, you know, teaching track positions that are full-time um, and, oh, and also in the U.S., by the way. So if you had international students who are not interested in staying in the U.S., those students, even if they get, you know, tenure track positions in the most prestigious universities at their, you know, in their back in their home uh, country, that doesn't count. Um, and then on top of it, any position other than a tenure track faculty member didn't count. I don't think, I don't know this for a fact because, you know, we don't have any PhD uh, programs here in linguistics. And so I'm not aware of this, but I don't think that that's any longer the case, that that's the only metric that's used, right? Or the, the, the main metric that's used. I don't know for a fact, but I want to say that it is my understanding that there is a shift in higher education in general, but also in graduate education, um, understanding that preparing graduate students for 
work and life outside of academia is very important. This mm-hmm. is a, like I'm thinking of like a more global trend, you know, across disciplines. I don't know what it's like in the linguistic sphere um, and thinking institutionally as well. I don't think it would serve institutions, doctoral granting institutions. It wouldn't serve them well to only look at um, academic tenure track positions because we, we know this is academics those positions are becoming more and more rare across disciplines. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with linguistics, not, you know, not getting these um, new tenure lines. Um, and so I, I do think that the metrics are shifting at the institutional level, which is wonderful because institutional pressures often drive departments to shift their foci. And that can actually drive us as a discipline. Um, so I think knowing that we have a group of you know, a core group of really, really wonderful um, scholars from our field who are working outside of academia and who are really talented in telling the story and preparing our students um, to tell their story um, and to make the connections uh, between our field and industry and corporate America. Um, And then, you know, having the pressure from our institutions to not only prepare our students for the jobs that we have. I think that combination is is really promising in some mm-hmm. ways. Totally agree. And I'm, I'm glad you said that um, because you're right. That is the pressure on departments pretty mm-hmm. much everywhere, right? Like that's what the institution is sort of demanding. Mm-hmm. And it's not great. And it's an old fashioned kind of metric. And it can't survive, you know, just no. looking at the state of the world, the way things are going. And I think what they're also missing is the very obvious source of funding that can come from industry. You know, it's already the case in the sciences, right? In the hard sciences, Mm -hmm. I would say. So, you know, chemistry and, and um, all of the other um, ones that are in different buildings, right? Like those people, Mm -hmm. those sciencey people over there, they get money, they get scholarships, (laughs) they get funding from industry. There's no reason why linguistics couldn't be getting some funding from industry because they want linguists. And if they see that this is going to be a good Yeah, of course they need linguists. If they see that they can help create a pipeline for good employees, that's a good use of their money. So I I think that is going to come eventually. It's not happening yet, but I think it will. And a department would be foolish to turn down funding, right, for something that's going to be valuable. And there's so many sectors, you know, government, technology, you know, there's there so there's such a palpable maybe I've seen it more because I've been doing this hopping in and out but outside if we want to use this metaphor of in and out of academia but outside academia there is such a hunger to build relationships to the university mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people who have you know if we can if we can build understanding of how we can meet their needs there's incentives on the other side for them to be reaching out to us and uh, mm-hmm. absolutely building these connections benefits the world really yeah um and i have spoken to a couple of people who have done internships while they've still been in graduate school and some of them have been sort of um 
through the the institution not directly but indirectly and it's it's a win-win for everybody right you know like you're doing it you're getting experience on the job you're working you're earning money the company is seeing what kind of person you are and learning how valuable linguists are Mm -hmm. so more of that you know even if it's not direct funding for the program having internships lined up for linguists who are even as undergraduates, you know, is is so incredibly valuable. So that that's where I think everything needs to move to eventually. And there are there's so many resources to, um, you know, I, I just would encourage any professor who's listening to this to to try to recognize those opportunities to leverage their students' curiosity, mm-hmm. and when an ask comes your way, to focus it out. You know, um, your students are researchers. They're trained to be researchers. Frame this as a research Mm -hmm. question that they need to, you know, get out there and and start doing, you know, fuel that spark, fuel that curiosity. I'm thinking about, you know, through the, the AAAS, they have fellowships where, you know, you could be paid for a year to sit in a federal agency. The whole year is about learning how to show how your field of expertise would be valuable and meaningful um, to, you know, this federal agency initiatives mm-hmm. like this exist all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you have an idea that your skills, uh, but sometimes you need to meet that Michal and I were at a workshop earlier today talking about sometimes you just find a mentor of the moment I think part of my life's mission is to make those people recognize those Mm -hmm. moments. Like here's a moment for Mm -hmm. you to be a mentor of a moment, just fuel a little spark of curiosity and say, why don't you look into whether there's, you know, professional development grant or some sort of funding initiative coming from the department of labor, you know, (laughs) that that you might be eligible for that might help you um, bring this to a, a question that would be meaningful to you or a, someone who's working on a problem that that you see needs to be solved. Well, and if if we can see, if all of us can see our role, right, whether in industry or in academia, if we can see our role as mentor of the, for the moment, right, or of the moment, um, rather than, what did you call them, Hannah Marie Bridge Troll? Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, I think every interaction, right, has... Um, the ability to, well, and I'm not, sorry, I'm not actually an original thinker of this, but this was also from our, our workshop this morning. You know, every interaction has the, um, the possibility of either turning a, a student completely off to something mm-hmm. or having them change their entire life's trajectory. And if we all think of every interaction that we have with students or interns or people looking for help and direction as, you know, I am, I have the power to either shut this person down completely or help them change their lives by just, you know, connecting them with somebody or with, or, or by just being a friendly face rather than a, a grumpy person telling them no then that can change so many of our students and so many of our, you know, of our colleagues trajectories. And that's huge. Absolutely. That's great. I think maybe that's where we'll leave it for now. Um, 
great advice all around to the students, but also to the faculty who might be listening. I hope you're listening. This is really important stuff, and it is it is the way of the future. This you know, is the, the way. This is the way because, you know, the way uh, jobs are going, the way universities are going, higher education is kind of imploding right now, which is very scary. But uh, there are places for linguists everywhere. And you guys at Boise State are doing an amazing job of preparing them for what's really out there and where they can go and love being a linguist and earn some nice money while they're doing it. Thanks. (laughs) So thank you so much for spending this uh, hour and a half that we've been chatting. I think this is great. Uh, As I said, I'm going to put all the links into the show notes and then people can look forward to that asynchronous class that you're developing. Um, And I'll put the link in for the place where they'll be able to find it when it happens. But when it does happen, we can definitely um, send out a note to folks so that they know that it's available. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks again, you guys. Thank you. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.